Thanks for listening to this episode of PageCast, brought to you by Jonathan Ball Publishers. In today's episode, News24 Books editor Sean Duvall is in conversation with author Spiwo Mahala about Blame Me on History by William Bloke Morisane. Feeling an exile in the country of his birth, the talented journalist and leading black intellectual Bloke Morisane left South Africa in 1959. It was shortly after the apartheid regime had bulldozed Safiatown, the township of his childhood. His biting indictment of apartheid, Blame Me on History, was published in 1963 and banned shortly afterwards. Morisane offers a harrowing account of the degradation and oppression faced daily by black South Africans. His penetrating observations and insightful commentary paint a vivid picture of what it meant to be black in apartheid South Africa. At the same time, his evocative writing transports the reader back to a time when Sophia Town still teemed with life. The 60th anniversary edition of Morisane's autobiography, serves as an example of passionate resistance to the racial discrimination in our country and is a reminder not to forget our recent past. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the chat. Hello, I'm Sean Defal, books editor of News24, and I'm speaking to Dr. Sipiwa Mahala of UJ and Jess, who was involved in the publication of the new edition of Bloke Madisani's book, Blame Me on History, an important work of South African literature from the drum era. And we're going to get some information from him about why this is an important book. It's News 24's Book of the Month for the month of February. Okay, thank you. First of all, thanks to News 24 for choosing Blame on History by Bloke Madisani as the Book of the Month. I think it's significant that um, a book that was published uh, more than 60 years ago uh, still has that kind of appeal. It's especially more important uh, because when Blame Moon History was published uh, in 1963, uh, it was published, first published in the UK, um, actually about six countries, UK, Italy, US, Germany. You know, it was a, a great success internationally. However, it was instantly banned in South Africa. Uh, so Blame Moon History was not available uh, in South Africa until 1986, the same year that Bloc um, Motesane died uh, when he died in Germany. Why did the apartheid government feel that the book is offensive? I think, first of all, Blame Moon History is, is, a, is a very important uh, uh, text in terms of capturing the history of the 40s and the 50s in South Africa, and this was at the height of apartheid, or apartheid was very, very fresh, uh, which was um, uh, introduced formally in 1948. Uh, so it captures that moment. Uh, but in particular, it, it tells the story of Sophia Town, um, his demolition, uh, the forced removals, and and he, he puts it in context. You know, um, uh, even though the, the government of the time claimed that Sophia Town was a slum. So he, much as he does not romanticize the slum as such, because this shows uh, the violence that was happening in Sophia Town, the squalor that was in Sophia Town. But at the same time, he says, uh, we have some, something of beauty out of that life. And, and what is very clear is that uh, Sophia Town um, demonstrated what a free South Africa would be like. Uh, in other words, you had uh, a mixed community 
where uh, black people could uh, uh, buy houses alongside Chinese, Indians, and, and all, you know. So it, it became a threat to to the apartheid setup because it was showing, you know, that it is possible uh, for different races to live side by side, you know. So um, uh, Blok Modesane tells that story, and he tells that story now. He writes this book, or rather he publishes this book in 1963, having left South Africa. And, and leaving South Africa, he does show us how vile apartheid was, you know, that um, in one instance, for instance, in a in Plano history, he there's a raid, and and his wife is is half naked, and that really shows that you you are not safe in even if in in your own house. And it was at that moment that he vowed that his child would not grow up uh, in a South Africa of that kind. So, do you think that the um, I talk about 1948 formal apartheid really, or or the sort of it was really called apartheid. Leading up to, um, I was talking uh, Safari Town in the mid fifties. Uh, by the time that uh, that uh, Modisani left, you're saying it was 1962 or three? No, no, no. He he left in 1959. 1959. Yeah, he left in 1959, and uh, the book was published in 1963. By the time he left, he was already working on the manuscript. Uh, the interesting thing is that. Um, uh, when he got to to London in 1960, he corresponded with uh, with Langston Hughes, and and you know Langston Hughes was instrumental in uh, in opening doors for him in in, in different ways. And when um, uh, Modisane was about to visit the U.S. Uh, in 1963, invited by Hughes, uh, or rather invited by uh, uh, as organization through the help of Hughes. Hughes advised him to bring the manuscript so that he can look for publishers in the U.S. And that, that's how he, he he got published in the U.S. And the interesting thing about it is that um, Modisani, in fact, wanted to dedicate the book to Hughes. So he says, uh, if, it, if I was not dedicating it to my mother, it would be to you because of uh, their close relationship. And that's why you see um, um, in his uh, current version uh, is dedicated to Ma Blok, because Blok Motesani was, was very, very close to to his mother. Yeah. Um, he left South Africa in 1959. Before that, um, tell us a bit about uh, his personal history and his uh, working for drum, his becoming a writer in that particular context of drum that uh, I mean, you're, you've done uh, a biography of Cantemba, um, one, also one of the key figures of that time. Um, so tell us a bit about how that generation of writers, I don't know, they, they sort of broke something open. They did something new and, you know, they're, they're like a bit of an explosion yeah. uh, in, in South African writing and in writing about the lives of ordinary people, the lives in the townships and so forth. Yeah. Well, Drum Magazine was founded in, in 1951, and um, it, it became a very vibrant um, uh, magazine in the sense that uh, the writers, it, it was targeted at a black population, and and uh, it was the essentially the biggest magazine that actually uh, targeted 
black population and whose scribes were black people from the same townships. Um, but what is peculiar about uh, uh, Modesane and Sofar town in particular is that most of these scribes lived in one place, uh, which is Sofar town. Um, uh, you can Temba, you Tord Machikis, you Eskiam Pashede, Louis Ngosi. They were part of this small knit community. And, you know, meaning they worked together and most of the time they drank together. You know, so there were all the stories around that. Uh, but again, what, what makes uh, Modisana stand out is that unlike um, many of his peers, you know, Ken Temba, who came from Marabastad, uh, or Pashene, who also came from Marabastad, Pretoria, or Ongosi, who came from KZN, uh, Machikiza, who came from Eastern Cape. Bloke Modisane was born and bred in Sofia town. And so that is why he is essentially the best candidate to use to illustrate how vile apartheid system was, because here is a, a black man born and bred here, and then government decides through its group areas act that you are no longer you no longer belong to this place. You know, as as are starting in 1955, uh, demolishing Town and um you know, forcing uh, communities, uh, families to to move to to other areas. For for me, that's one of the areas that make Modisane such a peculiar figure to make an example of. And also, you know, so far town there was the shipping culture was rife. And again, you know, he he shows us how that happens. Uh, for instance, we see. Bloke Modisane's father being brutally killed. You know, the violence that was happening in, in Sofia town, we witness it with the uh, murder of, uh, of, of uh, Bloke Modisane's father. And, and at that time, Modisane is 14 years old and he's forced to leave school so that he could support his mother. You know, and then in his struggles, his mother turns their home into a shipping. So, in other words, um, uh, the shipping culture might not necessarily or might not have always been uh, just uh, rebellion against the government, but it was also a way of survival, as we see with 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 Mablok. Mm. You know? and then he grows up. Um, he because he had these ambitions of becoming a doctor, and Mablok. Uh, Bloke's mother really wanted to see her son becoming a doctor, and at the time, um, uh, Doctor Kruma was was uh, was um, Modisane's role model. Doctor Kruma was the president general of the African National Congress at the time, and so he had this ambition. She had this ambition that her son would become a doctor, so he pleaded with him to go back to school. So we see Modisane going back to school. Um, to finish uh, high school um, and, you know, in between working at, at Vanguard Bookstore where he gets exposure uh, to, to the literary culture and also gets to interact with different races, different people at the store. You know, essentially, Modisane was 
That's how he came to maturity, through the streets of Sophia Town, through the streets of Jobet, by getting exposure to all, all these areas. And um, so we see him now, um, with the founding of Jamin in 51, he was one of the very first uh, uh, authors to publish a short story on Jam in um, uh, uh, The Dignity of Begging, the story called The Dignity of Begging. Um, uh, it's a story that is recognized as having uh, sort of introduced uh, a different kind of storytelling as far as short stories are concerned. Um, he had this protagonist uh, who, who who is a beggar, uh, but uh, uh, a beggar essentially by choice. Um, it, it's a interesting story. He writes quite extensively about it. Um, so um, even though Ken Temba, I mean, in 1952, um, seeing the success of the short stories on Jam, um, uh, 1952, Jan introduced the short story called uh, Competition, uh, for which then Ken Temba was announced in 1953 as the winner. You know, so that's how Ken Temba gets introduced to to the public. And, yeah. So essentially, Modi Sane started that movement in 1951 with the publication of uh, of uh, the Dignity of Begging. You know, so by the time he joined Dram in 1954, the readers of Dram already knew about him due to the short stories that he had, he had written. So he later joined them now, the stable, you know, working with the likes of uh, Temba, Matrikis, uh, and, and, and the rest. Yeah. So do you think that he was, um, it was very difficult to untangle these things and the sort of lines of, of influence. And so do you think he was influential on people like, Katamba and Patlele. I mean, was, was he someone they would have looked up to and followed his lead a bit? Or I'm just wondering what the sort of um, uh, no, no, not necessarily relationships were. Not necessarily because they were they were Mutisana's bosses, <laughs> so the influence is most likely to be the other way. But what he did really was to was to inspire Dram to pursue the short story. Um, Dram, when they first published in 1951, for instance, owned by um, uh, Bob Crisp, based in Cape Town, it was a total failure in, 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 in 1951. Um, uh, the circulation was really bad because their approach was to, even though it was purported to be uh, a black magazine to targeting black people, the content was not produced by black people mainly, one. Two, they had a presumption that black people in the urban space aspired to go back to the, to the villages, to the rural areas, you know. So they sort of tried to encourage this. Mm. And it was a total failure because it's targeting black people in the cities, and black people in the cities had no ambitions. There was no rural nostalgia about them. And there was someone like, uh, there was a generation of black people like blokes who were born in the city, you know, and know nothing about uh, rural culture and, and, and what the magazine was trying to, to advise, you know. So it was a total failure. 
So Blomow decided what he did when he published uh, Dignity of Peggy. He brought the story of black people in the urban space, how black people try to navigate uh, the urban space, as you see uh, with his character uh, uh, in, in uh, The Dignity of Peggy. In fact, he later wrote, uh, not later per se, but uh, separate from um, uh, Blame on History, he wrote a paper uh, which he presented uh, in the U.S. at AMSAC conference in March 1963, short story writing in Black South Africa, where he talks about how he created this character. He calls this character the, the unheroic hero. In other words, you might not approve of the thing that the character is, is doing, but he emerges as a hero because he manages to, to, to navigate his way through the, uh, the milieu, through, through, through the challenges of urban life. So that's what he did. And uh, in terms of uh, you know, inspiration, I think he was more influential uh, when it comes to the music. Uh, because he he worked as the as the as the music editor for for Golden City Post, because he worked for remember Drum Magazine was a was a monthly magazine and there was the uh, Golden City Post which was weekly, and these were sister publications. So he had his uh, column uh, where he critiqued music, and and you know even in his shack. Uh, which he called uh, the uh, uh, Sunset Boulevard. Um, he he played he played Mozart. He played all all sorts of music, and and he he drank the the most expensive champagne just because he told himself that he's gonna you know experience these luxuries, uh, you know, under under the circumstances. So he. He was quite influential. I, I think the other person who, who explored music or was taught Portuguese, and of course, who, who later became uh, became quite uh, prolific uh, when he went to exile. Um, but also, uh, this he writes about again in uh, in Blameman history that he encountered uh, Lionel Robertson, who was shooting a film, and. He was uh, brought in as a as basically a co-writer of the film. Uh, him, uh, Modisane and Luis Ngozi, they have uh, writing credits uh, in um, uh, Comeback Africa, uh, which became one of the first films shot in South Africa that depicted black people in a positive light. Um, but also he played in Ethel Fugard's uh, No Good Friday, when it began here in South Africa, and he was invited to to form part of uh, of King Kong when it was it was at Vets, but uh, he declined because he was already getting ready to to leave South Africa. Um, so these are some of the mediums that later on in life he will be more established on stage acting and film. So he he writes about both these things. Uh, in playing on history, because uh, he studied, he studied here. I'm interested in the. I mean, interested in his later career after playing on history, but also um, you're talking about the you know how drum angled itself initially as a sort of rural thing, 
Um, but then obviously when it, because it relocated to Joburg, right? Yeah. And then it really began to focus on urban life. It was a new kind of, um, almost a new kind of class of, of people that hadn't really been catered to in ways. It's, it's kind of an emerging consciousness, a new consciousness of what it means um, to be a black person in the city. You know, the sort of Jim Comes to Joburg narrative and grappling with all of that, which is also in, in um, Comeback Africa, obviously. Mm. But it's fascinating to me as well that so much of the stuff that they took interest in culturally was American. That suddenly, for the first time, I think, in, in South African culture, this enormous influence of the American, the, the music, the jazz, uh, the styling of the gangster movies and so forth. I mean, can you see that as a very big influence on, on someone like Bloke and his, uh, his contemporaries uh, and the way they thought? And obviously, you can see it in the music, but more broadly, I mean, do you think it's really important? Yeah, most definitely. Um, drum targeted uh, black urban population, all right? Um, so what made this population? These were uh, uh, the middle class or, or individual who aspired to form part of the middle class. And what do, who do they look up to? What books they read, do they read? Uh, what music do they listen to? What movies do they, do they uh, watch? So one of the direct influences uh, from America is uh, the Banduman Social Center, where Bloke uh, worked for a while. Uh, it was funded by the Carnegie uh, from the U.S. So reading material was directly from the U.S. That's just one of the influences. Jazz music. So when you read about music and you see newspapers and magazines, have black people who look like them, but who are in a freer environment, so to speak. Uh, so these are the people they aspire to. They accessed um, uh, material, uh, short stories by, by the likes of Langston Hughes, where the Harlem Renaissance had a direct impact uh, in South Africa. As a result, 1953, Henry Mumalo, who was still the assistant editor of, of Drum Magazine, wrote to, to Langston Hughes, inviting him to form part of the judging panel for the short story collection, sorry, for the short story uh, prize uh, trial. That, that's a direct influence in the U.S. And from 1954, uh, Ken Temba was given the responsibility of editing uh, Africa. Uh, another magazine for, from the Trump's uh, uh, stable. And in that magazine, he ran a column by, by Hughes, the, the, the symbol columns. Yeah, he ran it regularly there. So there was a direct uh, influence, but also the, the kind of films that they, they watched uh, at the Odeon mainly were from the US, uh, the bioscope like uh, some of the popular characters, Humphrey uh, Bogart. So you see, sartorially, they imitated uh, Americans. Hence, um, one of the uh, gangster gangsters at the time that the group uh, was called Americans. They actually dressed uh, in that way. They would have um, uh, what do you call that hat? Uh, fedora. 
yeah, they would have that hat, uh, you know, and suits and everything. They would change suits after suit. They would have suits for for each day of the week, you know. Um, and it was music, dress, literature, and unfortunately, the violence itself. They copied from from the US. Stetson hats. Stetson. <laughs> Stetson is the big cowboy hat. Yes. The, the, the big cowboy hats was those ones with the, I'm kind of imagining those, those things that like Bogart had, you know, the, the flat brim. Yeah. I think that's a fedora. Anyway, just to, to sort of wrap it up a little bit, what do we know of and what can we say about Bloke Morisani's life after he left South Africa, after he went to exile, I know he was in the UK for a while, he was in America briefly, I think, and then he was mostly in Germany, did a bit of acting, did a bit of this and that. I mean, what what, what would his, you know, he left South Africa because it was such an oppressive environment and because he didn't want to live like that and he didn't want to, you know, be that person. In his later life, in his life in exile up to his death, do you think that he found a sort of space to be at ease to be who he wanted to be? Blame on history ends uh, with uh, uh, Blomo Desani leaving South Africa in 1959. So he leaves South Africa via Botswana land, uh, Botswana, and then through uh, Zimbabwe and then Zambia and Tanganyika. That's where he, get, if he gets a, a visa to fly to the UK. Uh, his ultimate destination was the U.S. because Lionel Robertson had had um, uh, gotten him a, a bursary, uh, but his visa was declined in 1957 the first time. So he decided to leave the country illegally. So he lived in uh, in the U.K. for a while, working as an artist mainly. Uh, he had a breakthrough. He was uh, featured in a number of plays. Uh, uh, in, in the UK, including the Blacks, Chinese Blacks, Busman and Lena, and many others. And and he shot a number of films as well. I think in the UK, he was more successful. While we knew him in South Africa as a print journalist, in the UK, he was more successful as, as, a, as an actor, both stage and screen. And um, he also had a number of features in the BBC. Um, both as a dramatist, um, he, he wrote a number of radio plays, um, uh, but also uh, he he ran uh, what you could, could say a, a talk show in the BBC for for a number of years, and so he lived in 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 the UK for a while, and then um, he he married a, a German woman. Uh, they stayed in Italy, Rome, uh, for a short while, and um, and then he died in uh, in nineteen eighty six in West Germany. He he was now living in West Germany, um, but in, in between, I mean, he he spent some time in Tanganyika again. He came back to the to the continent uh, in the early sixties because he 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 was working on a book. Uh, which sadly was or was never published. All those years, uh, he he was I would say he was more success, successful as a as an actor. Um, and the publication of Blame on History in 1963 played a very important role in his success uh, because uh, 
1963, he delivers uh, this Anusak lecture in a writer's conference. Uh, and he gets invited to more than 20 institutions. He shares platforms with the likes of uh, uh, Oak Tambo, for instance, who was uh, the deputy president of the ANC at the time. So he becomes a very important figure. Um, and for, from that point, Blainmont history gets published. He gets uh, uh, certain figures in Sterling. That, that's his report, you know. So life was really great for him. In fact, he was often compared to James Baldwin, who had just released The Fire Next Door. Uh, their books were put side by side. In fact, uh, there are many comparisons uh, uh, where even though Modisani's book was the, it was his debut book, he hadn't published a book before. But there was a lot of comparisons with, with, with Baldwin at the time. So um, that, for me, shows how much of a, a global figure he had become at that time. And unfortunately, um, much as up to the late 60s, uh, things were looking good for him, uh, it doesn't seem like in the, in the early 80s, uh, or rather, late seventies and early eighties, things were that good. He, there was a decline uh, of some sort uh, that remains unaccounted for. Um, so the only thing that really sustained him, uh, especially towards the end, uh, were his radio plays. Uh, one of which actually uh, was broadcast in the BBC even after his passing. And the. Um... The, the manuscript you're talking about, the later manuscript uh, that was never published, is there any way of, of recovering that? Uh, Blogmo Designer's uh, unpublished material was brought back to the country, um, I think, in 2015 um, from his estate in, in Germany. Uh, apparently, it was his wish that his material would be brought back home. And amongst the documents, uh, is uh, an incomplete novel uh, that he was working on, as well as uh, the manuscript of the book he was working on when he spent time in, in, in Tanzania. Um, he was writing on the Majimaji rebellion. But the trouble with, the, with that one is that in terms of the records, it does appear uh, that it's one of the documents, but unfortunately, we haven't been able to get a hold of the manuscript itself. I, I have no idea what happened, but one of the books that he had written and uh, you know supposedly exists as a manuscript is a nonfiction uh, a book about the Majimaji rebellion. And the novel is. The, the novel is there. Um, the, the novel is there. Uh, I believe Mputu Mindabeni is working on the on the reimagination of the novel, some sort of uh, intertextual dialogue to write what he calls a fictional biography of Plomo Desani. It might be coming out this year. That could be interesting. Um, I think one more, let's just, um, I think you just give us one more sort of concluding thing. Just tell us why 
why is, why is Bloke Morisani and his writing important to us today? What has he got to say to us today? Well, he's 60 years after he, after he wrote this book. Yeah, Blame on History is, first of all, a biography. Uh, but it's not a personal story. It's, it's the story of South Africa. Uh, so that makes it a very important uh, reference material uh, for us to understand how apartheid affected uh, people at the time. Uh, but he does not just talk about uh, apartheid, but he gives it a human face. He, he gives us the feelings. You know, uh, Blame History is written in such a, in a form of a stream of consciousness that you, you get transported. You walk with more design through the streets of Sophia Town. You encounter the racism uh, in the newsroom. You encounter the difficulty of being a journalist in the 50s uh, through the personal stories that uh, Block Modesanya shares. And I believe that's what makes uh, Blame, Blame on History such a classic because uh, it's a story that remains relevant to, to, to our lives. That's a very vivid portrait yeah. of the time. It's interesting what you say about it, it is relatively little about himself. I mean, himself, he's there, he's as a perspective, as an observer and so forth. But he doesn't sort of, um, I mean, sort of uses himself as a narrative device in a way more than, you know, it's not yeah. like he wants to spill yeah. his son. Absolutely. I mean, if, if you, we know about the violence, we know about the squalor, and he takes us through it. And you, you don't feel like uh, there's a distance between the narrator and, and, and the reader. Uh, instead, the reader becomes part of the nar- of the narrative. Uh, that, that's, that's what makes it uh, exciting for me. I mean, when he talks about, we know about group errors act as an abstract, you know, law, uh, but we see it happening, you know, in terms of the forced removals from Sophia Town, what it means to a family uh, when you are outrooted from, from your place where you grew up. You know, so for me, as I say, it's not a personal story, uh, uh, but it's his story, and it's his story that all of us can relate to. Thanks for listening to this episode of PageCast. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, please contact us at pagecastpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep reading and listening.